The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What does it mean to be present? To try and stay in the moment that you're in and not worry about the future or regret the past. It's something I've been trying to do for a long time. I'm Diane Ray, and I have always had questions about the big picture. God, life after death, spirituality, metaphysics, and what drives people to do what they do. And I like to ask them about it and learn from it. If you're a seeker like me, I hope you join me for some of these conversations on the podcast and be present with me in this moment. Thanks for joining my podcast today. So before I started taping the podcast today, I went to see how many shows I've actually done. And I realized that I've done 229 episodes of this podcast. Woohoo! <laughs> so I checked today to make sure. And I was thinking about this. I can honestly say that I am still on my quest for wisdom. And I'm still interested in topics like spirituality, psychology, paranormal stuff, why people do what they do. So I hope I can do 200 more and continue some of the exploration that I've been doing on this podcast. And also, you know, since my Hay House radio days and Unity radio days, because just like the famous quote from Socrates, the only true wisdom is in knowing you know nothing. So in my ongoing quest to learn something and share it all with you, I am happy to have this conversation today, and I'm glad that you could listen in and welcome my guest, Peter Boland. And Peter is the author of a new book called The Seven Stone Path, An Everyday Journey to Wisdom. And when I saw the title and the subject matter, I thought, okay, this is great. This is going to be someone who knows, and maybe I can crack the code of philosophy and religious studies that I've been kind of chipping away at for all these years. Now, there's a lot of people who claim that they know things, and I'm not so sure, but I think Peter is the real deal. And he's taught philosophy, religion, and mythology in college classrooms for 32 years. And he is also a regular contributor to Unity Magazine, which is near to my heart, and I've read many of his columns there. And his new book explores seven archetypal ideas found throughout the world's wisdom traditions, and he turns them into tools that anyone can use to enrich their lives. So Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Diane. It's an honor to be here with you. Well, I'm so happy that we can have this conversation and congratulations on your book. I know it's like birthing a baby. <laughs> it is a, a surreal experience. Everywhere I've been going around town in San Diego lately, doing appearances, giving talks, 
um, people come up out of the audience with the book in their hand and they thrust a pen into my hand and ask me to sign it. I don't think I'll ever get used to that. Signing the book for people, it's a thrill. Oh, you should enjoy it. You deserve it because I know how hard that process is <laughs> for yes. people to do. And it is it is quite it's quite the accomplishment. And you said in the book that one of the most pressing reasons that you even wrote it was that you felt that philosophy, the theory and practice of wise living was out of reach for us everyday folk. And and what did you mean by that, that philosophy is out of reach? Well, I come from the academic side of things, right? Um, I, my, my day job is I'm a philosophy professor, as you said, at a community college here called Southwestern College. And so when I was in grad school as a philosophy student at San Diego State, it became increasingly clear that the higher I went from undergrad to grad, philosophy was getting more difficult more abstract, more specialized, and more and more people were being left out of it. <laughs> and it seems like, unlike in the ancient world, where Plato framed philosophy as therapy, thera, therapia, as a, as a healing modality, um, it seemed that in the 20th century, philosophy became a kind of specialized, uh, arcane practice, practiced by fewer and fewer people, and it, it lost touch with everyday folks. And that to me was lamentable because I was drawn to philosophy and religious studies precisely for its healing efficacy, right? That, that coming out of confusion, coming out of, of, of suffering was a universal human longing. And I really felt like in the world's wisdom traditions, there was crucial information hidden in plain sight. And, and why weren't more people talking about philosophy that way. Uh, I'm not the first guy to think of these things. And, and my book fits nicely alongside many, many others. But I really was moved, as I am in my community college classrooms, how do I bring these sometimes challenging ideas to life for regular working class kids like me who, who need a little help? And these are all great ideas that need to be revisited on a regular basis. And I, I am just curious though, what your parents said when you said, I'm going to be a philosophy major. I was lucky, Diane. My mom and dad never had the privilege of going to college. They are from the Netherlands. They, they came of age during the Nazi occupation. Um, they barely got out of Europe alive. And when they came to America, my dad was a printer. My mom stayed at home. And us three boys were the first generation in my family to go to college. And when I told them I was a philosophy major, they said, great, you study whatever you want to do, you know, so they're, they're a little old world in that way. These days we think of college education as, as job training, but I think they bring that kind of old world idea of higher education is about human making. And what you do for a career is up to you and sometimes even not related to what you studied in college. Right. I, I was just curious because I was thinking of the reaction I got when I told my parents, hey, I'm, I'm going into radio. <laughs> and they're like, what? Uh -oh. <laughs> but I, I think the, the study of philosophy is, is definitely a, a noble pursuit. And then, of course, becoming a teacher and a professor. Um, and my mother was a teacher and my, my sister's an, an academic or a, an administrator. So yeah. I think that's a very yeah. noble uh, profession in itself. But anyway, I kind of digress a little bit on that. But mm -hmm. speaking of philosophy, and you you share a great story in the book. There's many stories in the book that you share 
from all from different wisdom traditions, but I really like this one. Um, the story about two monks walking to a monastery and they see a beautiful geisha trying to cross a raging river. And can can you kind of finish the story? Because I think you'd probably do a better job of, of paraphrasing this. <laughs> well, I'll give it a try. Sure, I've told this story countless times in my world religions classes and Asian philosophy classes. So it's an old Zen story of an old monk and a young monk on a journey to visit a monastery. And they come to a swollen river and they have to walk across it, walk through it. And they look upstream and there's this beautiful geisha in her silk kimono. And she's a little bit challenged to kind of hiking across this river. So the old monk walks up to her bows, picks her up and carries her across the creek and sets her down on the other side. She thanks him and goes on her way. And the young monk stands back aghast, horrified that his old uh, friend uh, has touched a woman, but he doesn't say anything. And hours later, when they get to this far off monastery, the young monk can contain himself no longer. And he says to the old monk, I can't believe you touched that woman. We are monks. We are celibate. Why would you throw away your, your whole lifetime of celibacy and practice in this one, you know, and just was rattling on and on. And the old monk just listened patiently. And finally, when the young monk ran out of gas, the old monk said, I put her down at the river. Why are you still carrying her? And, and like many Zen stories, there is a fool and a wise person in the story. The young monk is not wrong about the legality of the rules of religious life, but his attachment to the formal, um, I would say, exoteric teaching or outer teaching blinds him to the esoteric or depth meaning of Buddhism, which is compassion. And I doubt any of us would would characterize that old monk helping that woman as an erotic encounter. Uh, but through the lens, through the distorting lens of this young man, he 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 didn't see any of it correctly. And, and so it's a it's a nice instructive story about how we can attach ourselves to teachings and ideologies that blind us to the hidden, deeper transformation those ideologies are designed to engender. Yes. Thank you. I knew you, that your dis description of the story would probably be much better than mine. And I have to say, I had never read that story. A, so this kind of hit it? me. It is. It hit me over the head because the ending line is so perfect. Well, I let go of this a long time ago. Why are you still holding her? Yeah. And it just kind of brought to light through that old story, what we're experiencing today on a daily basis of people and you call it the shadow side of religion and philosophy. And I just wanted to touch on it a little bit because we are seeing it play out in real time in our lives today. People that are so attached, so attached to what they believe that they can't see or speak to the other person and try yeah. to find common ground. And that's when I read that story, I went, wow, this, <laughs> that, that, kind of, that kind of blew me away. And what, what are your thoughts on where we are in this time in history where we're so divided, more divided than ever, that we can't even see the compassion, right? We, we, can't, we can't see that simple lesson because we're so blinded by everything yeah. else. It goes back to that Socratic idea you cited earlier that, you know, wisdom begins with the admission of ignorance. There's something, the whole introduction of the book really is about that one idea and about about how we can't even begin to, to, to walk the seven stone path until we admit 
that we have no certainty about things. And that's the young monk's problem. He is full of, of, of dogma and certainty, and it blinds him to the humanity uh, and of, of others and of himself. And that's kind of where we are today in a lot of ways. You know, there's nothing more frightening than people full of, of certainty. And, and especially when their certainty is so um, inflamed that they are willing to impose, impose their theology on others by any means necessary. They even want to use the coercive power of the state to imprison people who have different metaphysical views. I'm obviously openly referencing the abortion debate here. Right. And so there is, you know, we do not live in a theocracy where a particular religious ideology and the powers of the state are unified. Um, And that's a, a, a really great benefit. And it's also a liability because in the chaotic marketplace of ideas, there's always going to be tension. And so navigating that with humility and humor and compassion and good listening um, and bedrock empathy for every human being, uh, that's the that's the only way through this, through this mess. But what you hear in what passes for social discourse today uh, isn't much of that. It's a lot of chest thumping and a lot of certainty, claims of certainty. Right. Everybody is so sure that they know. And it's quite frankly, it's, it's frightening to the point that people are going to, you know, push their views and force everybody to believe a, a certain thing that they believe. So I am very frightened about that. But as someone like you who has, who has studied all of, or or many world religions and and traditions, there's a lot. I I remember (laughs) I've said this before on the podcast, people are probably going to roll their eyes if they've listened to a few episodes, but I went to the Parliament of the World Religions a few years ago in 2018. So I was in heaven because I saw all of these traditions, 200 of them I think were there at that particular year. So it was kind of pick one, you know, pick and choose. But what I was able to distill from a lot of it was, and kind of what you do in the book, you know, the golden rule applies in all of those traditions, right? right? Do unto others. Why why can't we get back to something that that's that simple? This is what strikes me in my many decades now of immersion in these wisdom traditions as a student, as a practitioner, as a teacher. What Aldous Huxley called the perennial philosophy, you know, all, all the way back in the 1940s, I think when that book came out or 30s. The idea that all of the world's religions and wisdom traditions uh, are expressions of a submerged, relatively small set of archetypal or universal ideas. And one of those is, this, as you just mentioned, the golden rule, this idea of uh, setting our moral compass to the true north of do unto others as, as you would have them do unto you, or as Confucius put it, what is hateful to you, do not do unto others. Um, that's playground morality, right? Everybody understands that. And it, it, it upholds the infinite value of all human beings. And, and now, through the lens of a lot of indigenous wisdom, it upholds the dignity of all sentient beings, of all life, of Gaia herself, the entire planet. So the extension just continues all the way out. Everything matters. Everything matters. That's so true. And it, I, I mean, unfortunately, we won't be able to 
go over all of the seven ideas, of course. The seven stones. But I do want people to pick up the book and, and read these because I'm still spending time with it. And I think that you make the point in the book that you want people to spend time with these ideas. We should marinate in these a little bit. Yeah. And after every, at the end of every chapter, after, you know, the lesson or what, you know, what you're teaching, and then there's a meditation to kind of like let things sink yeah. in. I mean, do you hope that people will spend time with the book in that way and absorb these ideas? Yes, this isn't a, a page turner. This isn't a plot driven novel, right? This is nonfiction. And, and the feedback I'm getting from all the people I know who are reading the book is, you know, Peter, I'm taking little chunks at a time. And I, I borrowed a trick from Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth and, and, and The Power of Now. I really love how he divides every chapter up into like little two and three page subsections. And as, as I began writing the book, it just naturally kind of fell into that structure. And I'm hearing people say, you know, I just read one of those little two or three page subsections at a time and, and then move through the chapter. I'm underlining a lot. People are telling me I got to the end of the book and I started again. And, and um, like you say, there's a summary at the end of the chapter and there's a guided meditation. Um, I'm, one of my aspirations is creating an, an audio book. I'm still looking into that. So but whether you're reading it or listening to it, the audiobook does not yet exist. But um, that, that guided meditation at the end of each chapter, I intend as an opportunity to move out of the intellect and conceptual understanding. And, and just from all of, I, all of our years of meditation practice, we know that things really get good when you grow still enough to slip beneath the waves of the thought stream into that sometimes content-free awareness that we are and to take what we've learned in our, in our conceptual mind into that uh, embodied space. And that's, I think, an important part of learning. Yes. That space, a, a meditation teacher that taught us all at Hay House, this guy named David G. I don't know if you've ever heard, heard his name, but he calls it the gap, that space. Yeah. So we, all, we always try to, to get into the gap. And I want to mention just the seven ideas that you lay out in the book, just so people will kind of get, get a, a glimpse or a taste, and then they can explore them on their own more when they do read the book, which I will strongly urge them to pick it up and do. <laughs> yeah. So the points are, or the stones, acceptance, surrender, engagement, allowance, enjoyment, love, and integration. And, and kind of like the golden rule, did you find that these points exist in all religious traditions or these ideas? Yes. That's really the thesis of the book is that as a teacher and, and student of these traditions myself, my whole life, um, I, I wrote the book for students or anyone who, who I've worked with who often ask me at the end of a class or at the end of a session, hey, what's a book I can read that kind of continues this inquiry? And I thought, you know, there's so many great wisdom books in the world, but I'm going to write another one because not my own wisdom, of course, but my, my, my reporting from what these wisdom traditions are up to and put it in a package that people can kind of take with them. And, and so those seven ideas kind of came out of the, the very early drafts of the book as a kind of organizing principle, beginning with acceptance and then all the rest of them. And each step kind of comes out of the previous step. 
And, and by the time you get to step four, steps one, two, and three are still present. And so there's a kind of dialectical progression through all of them. It's just a, it's just a, a pedagogical device. It's a way of organizing all of these incredible ideas into a, what I think is a pretty reasonable assertion that, that wisdom develops in us really effectively if we, uh, do it in this order, do it in this direction and, and, and take the advice from all these world wisdom traditions that I cite in the book from East, West and everything in between. And there's so many to go through in the book. I'm, I'm really enjoying it and I'm taking my time in, yes. in working my way through it. But I did want to spend some time on one of the stones because it was something that I've been experiencing this week. And it's the first one that's acceptance yeah. And this week has been a little depressing for me because I've, I've watched an old friend lose his life partner after 25 years, um, a, a guy that I'd grown up, grown up with as a child, and just seeing his pain um, has been really tough, you know, and I realized that, well, I'm going to experience that one day. Yeah. I mean, eventually I'll die, and my husband is a little older. He might die first. I don't you know, I don't know when. You never know, <laughs> how, right? You never know, right? I could get hit by the bus today. But exactly. At some point, you know, we are all going to experience that as humans, and and you start that chapter with wisdom begins with accepting what is, and this may be a, a very difficult one to master because we always want to know what's going to happen next, or you know, how can I change this, but. I just wanted to spend a little time on that because it was something that I was kind of dealing with myself this week is just accepting what is. I decided to really start with one of the most difficult ones, <laughs> of all, of, you know, because out of acceptance, let me, let me back up. If we could kind of root down into the consciousness of acceptance, all of the remaining six stages become possible. But without this first one, none of the remaining six are possible. The maybe one way to begin thinking about acceptance is to explore the alternative. The alternative to acceptance is constant anger and grief and frustration and resentment that outer conditions don't conform to what I want them to be. And this comes out of, and a lot of that first chapter takes the reader through a kind of a Buddhism 101. You know, what are the four noble truths? What is the eightfold path? Because he's the guy, right? When it comes to teachings about, about the connection between attachment and suffering, um, Buddhism and Stoicism really are the traditions we think of first. So there's a lot of stuff on Stoicism in this chapter too, which like Buddhism counsels us to realize that we are not in charge, that 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 it is a recipe for suffering if you go around trying to control the weather, traffic, other people, your own aging process, and so on. And so one of the misunderstandings about acceptance is it's like, wait a minute, you want me to accept racism? You want me to accept uh, child molestation? You want me to accept uh, war and, and and it's an emphatic no, right? So acceptance is not passivity in the face of all conditions. Acceptance is an inner state of realizing that in this moment I am not controlling almost everything, but 
when I let go of my egoic complaining and need to uh, judge, all of a sudden I feel um, more capable than before of stepping into this next moment with intentionality, with consciousness, with decisive action. So it's a curious paradox in our spiritual work too, isn't it? You know, we are always trying to grow more uh, enlightened while at the same time accepting us just the way we are. There's that great Zen saying, you're perfect just the way you are, but you could use a little improvement. <laughs> so so right? you know, how, how do you do that? How do you love yourself the way you are, but still try to get better? Well, we do it all the time. And what if we viewed the consciousness or the wisdom of acceptance the same way? I'm going to work for change. I'm going to work to um, deconstruct injustice, et cetera. I'm going to work to save the planet, but I'm going to start with the consciousness of acceptance and go from there. That is such great stuff. <laughs> I love that. And it, it, it brought me from acceptance to a problem that I've had for a while to the point where I called this podcast Be Presence to remind myself to be in the present moment. And I know that the root of this probably is genetic because I come from a long line of warriors. My mother was a <laughs> we all do. classic hand wringer. My grandmother was too. They worry, worry, worry. And it's come down to me to the point where my husband calls it my parking problem. And the reason he calls it that is because I'm always worried about where we're going to park before we get there. <laughs> and you being from San Diego, we both live in the same city. Yeah. We know parking's at a premium. So yeah. I worry about this all the time to the point where I'm not enjoying where we're going or when we get there because I'm worried about parking. But and there's always a parking spot. Here. But that doesn't mean there will be next time, damn it. That's right. <laughs> that is right. But you came to the rescue in this because I, I underlined this in the book. When we realize that the past and the future are simply thought events that occur only in this present moment, the only thing left is now. Thank you. That, well, that put things in perspective for me. And then how do you manage this? Because you seem like a laid back guy and you don't sweat the parking spot uh -huh. and you sail into that spot with no sure. problem. Is that true? You're not reading me right at all. <laughs> I'm a ball of, of, of anxiety. No, anxiety. What do you think? Why do you think I got into this business? Right. I mean, you know, what's that saying? The teacher always teaches what they most need to learn. Uh, and, and, and there are many passages in the book that are deeply aspirational for me. I wish I could always be in this present moment, but at least intellectually, I enjoy discussing with you and whoever else is reading the book, the idea that there is no such thing as the future. It's an absolute projection. And the past is just a memory that is occurring in this present moment. And that's something that comes out of Buddhist philosophy uh, that, that frees me, that liberates me from horribleizing the future, which is a curious kind of malady or pathology that it afflicts all of us. And I don't think it's our fault. I, 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 I'm not just going to blame your ancestors. I think it's our ancestors. I think Homo sapiens evolved 150,000 years ago from those in a, in a Darwinian sense who survived because they were worried all the time about, about threats. And the caveman who was super chill and didn't worry about threats, he got eaten by a saber-toothed tiger and did not pass on his genes. So we 
are the genetic product of thousands of generations of really anxious, worrying people. And here we are with these brains that are frankly a little maladapted to what this environment actually is. There are no saber-toothed tigers. Uh, and we're, most of us in this middle-class kind of American life are, you know, we're fed, we, you know, we have a roof over our head if we're lucky and things are kind of okay. And so we end up channeling that anxiety into, is there going to be a parking place there when I get there? Right. That's, that's what I do. And I've, I've been fighting I, this a long I time. Got those too. And, <laughs> and just as an aside, I did ask who I thought was much wiser than I, Louise Hay, when I was at Hay House, because she did a, a program called The Point of Powers in the Present Moment. Mm-hmm. And I said, Louise, how often do you live in the present moment? And she said 80%. That's pretty good. <laughs> it is pretty good. It's I've been aspiring to to that percentage. Yeah. I don't know if it's true. Maybe she was just telling me that <laughs> made mm-hmm. me feel good. But I, I did ask her that because I, I was curious about how often she was able to stay there. But uh, I, I thought that was a great a great teaching. Uh, so I kind of held on to that one. And uh, the other one I want to mention to you, which is also a rock band. People might be thinking about this when they hear the word Nirvana. And I <laughs> thought your description of Nirvana was was a great um, understanding of it. Because I think when some people think of Nirvana or heaven, or if we're going to get there and what we have to do to get there, and we have to do all these things, there's all these conditions, <laughs> there might be angels involved and clouds <laughs> and and all of that. But your description of, of Nirvana, I thought was great in that the, it's in the, the stillness and serenity, and serenity that's devoid of craving and fear. So you take that out and it's this this beautiful, peaceful place. That sounds like nirvana to me. It's a it's a challenging Buddhist word. And Buddhism is not one thing, right? There's hundreds of kinds of Buddhism and there's thousands of years of, of evolutionary development in Buddhism. So I don't speak for any other Buddhists. Uh, I should say any Buddhists. But in my philosophical investigation of Buddhism and everything else, I'm caught by the fact that nirvana is a Sanskrit word that literally means no wind. Near means no, and vana means air that is moving. And so it's a kind of one-word poem that suggests tranquility and stillness. And so in the teachings of the original Buddha, before Buddha became b- before Buddhism became a devotional religion, where the consciousness shifted to worshiping the Buddha as a deity and and the sort of um, individualistic question of, am I going to get to nirvana when I'm, when I'm dead, if I'm a good enough Buddhist? And all that sort of traditional Christian overlay almost. But in original Buddhism, I think nirvana didn't mean an after-death experience for good Buddhists. It meant a condition of consciousness, and which is, by the way, what Jesus might be talking about when he talks continually about the kingdom of heaven and how it's in our midst and how it's within us. What if these wisdom teachers are pointing not out here, but in here to a condition of consciousness, which ordinary thinking cuts out, egoic, future-based, anxious. Um, to, To enter nirvana then in the Buddhist sense would be to somehow let at least most of my fears go and my cravings. And then what results is a kind of serenity that we could call nirvana. And it, it, it makes nirvana not, a, not another ambitious achievement. Yay, I got nirvana. As, as um, 
the contemporary teacher Adyashanti puts it, you know, uh, somebody asked him once, are you enlightened? And he said, there are no enlightened persons. When enlightenment happens, there is no one there to claim it. Right. And so nirvana is a peacefulness without um, labels, without um, identity. I like that. So many great uh, things, you know, lessons I'm getting from this book. And it's, hmm. it's really fun to talk with you about this because right. I've, I've learned a lot in just what I've spent time with. And I'm anxious to really read more of the book. And what, so what is your hope? Like, I, I don't know if this has happened to you, but I've, I've had books. I love bookstores. I'll go in any bookstore right. anywhere. And I've had books fall on me and, <laughs> and I've kept them. Do you hope, who do you hope this falls on or who is this for? I guess it's really for everybody. Yeah. But I want people to be excited about these concepts like they excite me. So I want it to land on the head of, you know. Well, I'm doing everything I can to get the word out there, Diane. You know how it is. and and But there's also a sense in which I'm taking the lesson from Krishna and the Bhagavad Gita to work without attachment to the fruits of work. I, I'm, I'm trusting this book to find its own readers. Because uh, that's how I find books. I mean, I'm doing my best to get the word out, right, in, in, in whatever small ways I can. But my favorite stories are this, the reader, this woman I know at a local church, a First United Methodist Church, who, who says, hey, I'm part of a book circle. We gather and read. And I pitched her book and my whole circle's reading it. And, and we're talking about it. And, and then everybody in the circle is telling all their friends to buy it. And so I, I just hope that over the next couple of years, there's that kind of word of mouth thing that no uh, Facebook ad can really accomplish. <laughs> um, I'm doing, like I said, I've got a big YouTube channel and I have a lot of social media stuff. And so I'm everybody within a couple of miles of me knows about this book by now. But now I just kind of wait honestly, and wait for the right readers to kind of step forward into the work. And, and I think it'll find, it'll find those people. No book is for everyone. Uh, but I think folks who kind of have these questions and enjoy the liberating power of this kind of inquiry are going to be attracted to it. And, and it's there on Amazon and every other online bookseller. And so they can easily find it. It's only $2.99 now for Kindle readers. I'm like, I saw that. Wow, that's day. cheap. That's cheaper than a magazine, right? You How need you to charge more for all this well, incredible I wisdom. I, I, I'm just the, I just work here. <laughs> well, I'll make sure that all of the links are in the show notes of the podcast. Oh, People will be able to click and click and buy and also reach you. We'll have links to your website and your social media, great. how to get in touch with you. And it's, and it's been so fun to, to talk with you about these concepts and I, I was a little a little bummed earlier today, but now I now I feel better because, <laughs> like, like Bill Murray and Caddyshack, I know I'll achieve total consciousness at the end. Remember that? <laughs> yes, <laughs> that was the Buddha's movie. tip. <laughs> <laughs> on your deathbed, you'll achieve total consciousness. Right so on. he has that going for him. He has that going for him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can awesome. only only hope that that's that's true. Yeah. Peter Bolin, the book is the Seven Stone Path: An Everyday Journey to Wisdom. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with me. And thank you, the listener. You have a choice in the podcast world. 
for listening to me. And I'm really pleased that you are. If you like what you heard, please leave a review. And if you haven't downloaded the free mindbodyspirit.fm mobile app, make sure you do so. It's available for Apple or Android. You can also leave a message or comment for any of our podcasters, including myself, on the open mic feature. So check that out. And also give a listen to all of the wonderful podcasters we have on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network. We talk to the animals and we know you can too. On the Animal Communication Podcast hosted by the three of us, myself, Julie Heert, Karen Debbie-Smith, and Meredith Tolleson. We will show you how to deepen your relationship with your beloved animal companions, whether they're alive or in spirit. As soul-level animal communicators, we explain the process and explore topics such as health, behavior, and play, all from the animal's perspective. So subscribe and follow us on Apple, Spotify, and listen as part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.